The Free Speech Coalition. The Free Speech Coalition. The Free Speech Coalition. Free Speech Coalition. The Free Speech Coalition. The Free Speech Coalition. Podcast. Welcome to the Free Speech Coalition podcast. This is part two of our interview with Professor Nadine Strassen, former president of the ACLU. Do you do you think um, that it's turning it's turning to completely something different? What do you think accounts for the what looks like a, sub, a really substantial youthful abandonment of confidence that? Um, that they can prevail in a marketplace of ideas and a desire to be protected and all of the other calls that we initially thought were simply a few activists but clearly have the tacit support of a lot of young people and we've had that mm-hmm. Jonathan, Jonathan Haidt has, vis- has recently visited New Zealand and if I summarise what I, I drew from it on this topic is that the generation that's had full exposure to social media is so sensitive about their own fragility, their, 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 the, the risk of the pile-on, the permanent effects of the vilification, that they are willing to tolerate uh, or they're demanding a level of protection by the authorities that might be very difficult to, to counter if it's, if it's deep in emotional fear, uh, the reason doesn't go very far. Um, so, Stephen, that is a very, very important point, and it has a lot of resonance for what's going on in this country, but as well. Uh, but I have two counterpoints to make, which are bases for optimism, and I must say I am very optimistic despite all of the challenges. So, number one, it's always been true throughout my entire adult lifetime that everybody wants to make an exception to free speech protection for whatever speech they consider to be dangerous and hateful. So it's not as if there really has been a dramatic drop-off in support for controversial speech. Let's go back to the Skokie case that you appreciatedly raised earlier. I mentioned that the ACLU won a slam dunk victory in the courts of law because what was at stake is this bedrock principle that uh, we call it viewpoint neutrality, that government can't disfavor speech, censor speech, because its viewpoint, its idea is hateful or hated. But even though we won handily in the courts of law, we really took a beating in the court of public opinion including from ACLU members. If anybody is expected to be a diehard supporter of free speech, you would hope it would be people who care enough to, you know, pay their membership dues and join the ACLU. And yet we lost 15%, of our members resigned in protest and said, you know, we really support free speech, but we want to make an exception for this particularly hateful uh, uh, example of hate speech. And that was way back in 1977. And our members, by and large, uh, people don't start joining until they've gotten out of school, paid off their school debts and tuition. And so we're talking about young people today. We're talking about middle-aged people uh, decades ago. So that's one 
sort of comforting factor that we've always had to deal with this and we've weathered these these challenges. Uh, The second ameliorating factor is that the pendulum has definitely been swinging back, including on college campuses. There has been a lot of publicity and a lot of negative commentary about the overreaction that we've seen and the incidents that have been well publicized. And so there's been a lot of resources poured into campuses. Uh, Free speech principles have been adopted by the universities, modeled on one that was initially adopted by the University of Chicago several years ago, is spreading like wildfire around the country. Uh, Universities are uh, bringing in programming and courses and orientation sessions to uh, acculturate students to the importance of free speech is one of the reasons why I'm speaking constantly on college campuses along with other advocates of free speech who specifically make the case that is designed to appeal to the concerns of these young people, at least in my country and from what I read around the world, and this is positive. Um, So let's, again, emphasize the positive. This is a generation that is deeply, deeply committed to equal rights under the law and respecting the dignity of those who have traditionally been marginalized and disempowered and so they're fighting for racial justice and for gender justice and for uh, fair treatment of immigrants and refugees i mean all of that is just really really wonderful and so um, they're very open to the case that i can make based on history and based on experience around the world that if you want to promote those causes you have to be supportive of Free speech. Last night, for example, I spoke at Williams College in um, northwestern Massachusetts. It's uh, widely considered to be the most outstanding liberal arts school in this country, and it, the liberal arts campuses are where we've seen a lot of the adverse reactions to free speech, including at Williams. There have been just very uh, widely reported and highly criticized incidents there of controversial speakers being disinvited. But interestingly enough, by the president of the college in response to certain student pressures. So we you know, can't only blame the students. There's been a failure of leadership on the part of the college officials in this country, too. Uh, but they had, there was a, a lot of pushback from a significant group of faculty and students. Again, uh, some of the surveys, uh, in, many of the surveys indicate that the Calls for censorship are mostly coming from a relatively small number of students and faculty members who are disproportionately influential and shame on the others for not having pushed back enough. But I think the pushback has been getting uh, stronger and stronger. And um, so Williams, just as an example, uh, set up a committee called the Committee of on Inquiry and Inclusion which was very strategic and very well done. I read their report uh, where they engaged, including with the students who were saying, you know, we don't feel included. And they came out with a fantastic report that was uh, inclusive of not only all people, regardless of their identities, but also all ideas, regardless of how unpopular or hated the ideas might be. And yesterday I participated in a public discussion there, including with students who had been ringleaders 
uh, for censorship who have really come around to the other side and did so very very publicly that they've been persuaded that they can't um, uh, succeed in their social justice crusading without strong protection for free speech. Hmm. Can I um, take a different tack and it's really um, might be something that comes from having an English law tradition and, and a bit uh, away from your jurisprudence. I'm concerned that part of the fake news phenomenon is a reflection of a genuine um, degradation of the currency in the market, in the market of ideas, that in fact anything goes, there's a sort of Gresham's law, if you know what I mean by Gresham's law, it's an argument that counterfeit currency tends to replace genuine currency whenever counterfeit currency is allowed to circulate because the benefits of using it exceed the costs and the costs of using genuine currency when others don't have to is that you're just a mug. And I wonder whether the approach of your courts to narrow protection uh, uh, for public figures against lies told about them may have genuinely opened things up in a way that has uh, just diminished the quality of public discourse. Uh, one might say the same thing about the ACL, ACLU's championing or appear, appearing to champion Larry Flint and, and obscenity. In other words, that there are some uh, positions that we've taken, those of us who've been, as I have all my life, been against censorship, that we have ended up defending um, things which have damaged that marketplace and we ought to have recognised that um, defamation itself uh, is actually it defends the currency, not just the individual who takes the action. That's such an interesting point, Stephen. I take it you may be making it somewhat as devil's advocate. It's interesting that it comes from uh, the Antipodes because the very first time I had the opportunity to go to that part of the world many, many years ago, before many of your listeners were born, it was to do a debate at the Australian, whatever the equivalent is of the Bar Association in the United States, the annual meeting of all of the lawyers and judges. And I did a debate against the then Attorney General of Australia on the very strong protection of even defamatory speech in the United States when the person being defamed is a public official or a public figure. And the legal proposition was whether Australia should move in that direction. And I uh, have continued to stay abreast of that area of the law, and I believe it is apps, and then we can move on to obscenity. But in terms of defamation, at least when you were talking about a public figure or a public official or a matter of public concern, I do agree with the United States Supreme Court that what is at stake is really our democracy itself even beyond individual liberty. So I guess I do agree with you that what is at stake is something that uh, on a broader scheme, even than important individual freedom, but I think that's something that cuts in favor of allowing more protection because the danger of self-censorship 
in potentially saying something that turns out to be untrue and is injurious to reputation of a, of a politician is absolutely frightening in a democracy where we, the people, have the sovereign power. And how can we responsibly wield it unless we can engage in the most heated, vigorous debate and discussion about those we elect who are supposed to be accountable to us? I mean, see how Donald Trump has been saber-rattling ever since he started running for president, that he wants to uh, change the libel laws so that it's easier for somebody like him uh, to sue those who are critical of him and how he has he's bastardized the term fake news and disinformation, using it promiscuously for a even true expression that is critical of him. And, and, of course, the lawsuits could be brought even if they were ultimately not successful. So I think that the chilling effect would be uh, extremely dangerous. And one of the, one of the uh, additional disturbing practical impacts of the anti-hate speech laws in other countries is how often they have been enforced against expression by political candidates and by actual officials who are making statements about matters of public policy. And, I, and the defamation laws obviously also can be used um, that way. In fact, there's a case from Austria that's now before, I believe, the European Court of Justice in which a, uh, somebody used very strong language to criticize the leader of the Green Party in Austria, including calling her a fascist. And, and, and there was a successful defamation uh, lawsuit against that speaker in Austria. And to me, that's just completely inconsistent with basic democratic principles. I'd rather have, uh, you know, overprotect some defamatory speech than, than underprotect um, the defamatory speech that is critically about public issues and public officials. On, on so-called obscenity or sexually oriented expression, in the United States, we still do have an obscenity exception to the First Amendment that the Supreme Court created out of whole cloth. It's been very strongly criticized uh, by legal experts for many years, and the U.S. Supreme Court has refused to revisit it. But uh, it's a fairly narrow category, um, and so the vast majority of sexually oriented expression, including Larry Flint, to whom you allude, um, Hustler magazine, um, what most people call pornography, has been constitutionally protected. And again, uh, uh, even if you just look at the overlap between sexual expression and matters of public concern, uh, sex is in the news all the time when you talk about sexual orientation and gender identity and contraception and um, marriage equality and uh, abortion uh, and so giving the government power to to censor any subcategory of sexual expression also disproportionately endangers those who are seeking to change the law on all of those public policy issues. And uh, I wrote another book quite a long time ago called Defending Pornography, Free Speech, Sex, and the Fight for Women's Rights, in which um, in the United States, and I know it's definitely true in, in New Zealand and other countries as well, 
there has been a strong faction of some feminists who argue that some category of sexual expression is degrading and demeaning to women and causes violence and discrimination against women and on that rationale should be censored. When you think about it, it's like it's a subcategory of hate speech, right? Speech that's hateful and uh, promotes discrimination and violence specifically on the basis of sex or gender. Uh, But the evidence showed exactly the same thing. So in studying the actual enforcement record of laws against sexual expression, whether you call them anti-obscenity laws or anti-pornography laws, they too are involve so much discretion that they're disproportionately enforced against those who are challenging the status quo in some way or seeking law reform in some ways or advocating on behalf of relatively disempowered minorities such as sexual orientation or gender minorities. And by the way, Larry Flint's Hustler magazine, I know because it was involved in a number of of censorship cases, um, was very political. I say was because I I just haven't looked at it since that litigation. Uh, But it was very political and it was filled with uh, with, uh, materials that had sexual content, but also uh, very important political content as well. Um, I know that you, you list in, in your book this certain um, categories of unprotected speech, um, uh, things like, um, like libel and, and, and um, uh, obscenities. Um, I, I think you write the Supreme Court in the United States makes a distinction between speech and nonverbal conduct. Um, and Not exactly. Uh, so the term... The, the First Amendment itself uses the term speech and also the press. Uh, Congress shall make a law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. But for a very long time, that has been extended to nonverbal, symbolic, expressive conduct, everything from marching in a parade to waving a banner to wearing an armband to burning the U.S. flag. And, you know, so, for example, the flag burning decision was very controversial, was decided by the Supreme Court five to four, but the disagreement was not over whether burning a flag is sufficiently expressive that it should trigger some First Amendment protection. The question was, is there a justification for restricting this particular expression? Right, right. So that um, the... Uh, certain arguments that I've heard here in the in the Supreme Court in New Zealand that um, certain speech that is of, of low value, um, so far as democracy is concerned, may not be wholly um, protected uh, by by our. Uh, well, a good example is that is that both here and in the United States, um, the courts have been quite quick to dismiss the freedom of commercial speech. Right. They've said that you know it does it does it's, it's of low value, and I, I have always found that. Uh, pretty puzzling. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of commercial activity that changes society and moves society on and, or, or does not. But I do wonder if we could have avoided some of the controversy if we'd said the kind of speech that ought to be protected is that which persuades, that it's that which reasons, not, not that that attempts to coerce or that relies solely for its power on its ability to offend, and, and flag burning is probably in that category. In that category. So you would disagree with that, uh, Nadine, wouldn't you? That um, it, 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 if speech were to wholly be protected uh, on its 
persuasive power that 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 would leave out quite a bit um speech that would be wholly seen well, as self-expression or it's, it's persuasive intent right and because i think the an equal part of the importance is not just the power to speak it's the right to seek information right but um it's not often and it is true that i i do agree with the supreme court which again i don't think this is controversial on the court itself um that a, a purpose of and a justification for expression is not only to try to persuade other people, but simply to express yourself, your views, your autonomy, even your emotion. And that was said very strongly by a very respected conservative justice on the Supreme Court in 1971, John Marshall Harlan, in a case called Cohen versus California, in which the court protected his right to wear a jacket in a courthouse that said, fuck the draft. This was during the Vietnam era. And not only was the anti-draft message extremely controversial and provocative at the time, uh, but the F word was just unbelievably controversial. I, I say unbelievably because now people use it so profligately and so casually. I always have to put it in context for my students. I really think that the F word was as shocking then as the so-called N word is now. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court actually instructed the ACLU lawyer who was arguing the case not to use the word wow. <laughs> in the oral argument. From that and it was in that case that you so the argument was um, well you can convey the message in some other way and and Harlan's response to that was it's you know first of all you can't change a single word without changing the message and and secondly um, it's not just about what you're communicating to somebody else it's even an inarticulate uh, inarticulable uh, emotion being conveyed by this particular expression form of expression is something that comes within the ambit of the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. As a matter of law, I think that's clear. Um, I, I, I'm not being devil's advocate, though, when I think that that is a, a bridge too far. I think that it's, uh, mm -hmm. it, it, it requires us to try to defend something which intuitively most people won't defend if the... I mean, another word that has become common now is, is, is motherfucker, which once was absolutely mm -hmm. inconceivable for my generation or any mm -hmm. generation. And to, mm -hmm. me, to me, I think it was a healthier mm -hmm. society when one couldn't freely throw, throw words around like that. Hmm. This reminds me a great deal of George Carlin's uh, seven naughty words. Just <laughs> get there. <laughs> Because what I'm thinking is that this might, I don't think all of these so-called snowflakes of the younger generation would agree with that approach, Steve. And I think, you know, for all of their squeamishness about racist and sexist language, I think that they would be horrified at the thought that they couldn't use uh, these vulgar terms. Oh, I'm, sure, I'm sure you're right. I mean, I, I, but, I, but I, would, I would apply that equally. I would say that if I'm going mm -hmm. to... You know, we, we had quite freely, without any intent, would have, without any um, hostile intent, would have used a lot of words that, that make this generation squeamish. As a matter of mm -hmm. courtesy, I'm quite happy to accept yeah. that I shouldn't use them. I should be compelled to persuade, not just to offend. Right. Yeah. 
I certainly am all in favor of courtesy as a voluntary matter of self-restraint. I'm just supposed to somebody government coercion. Uh, the, the last thing that I was curious about and get, getting the opportunity to speak to you for so long is, is a great privilege, Nadine. Is, is oh, the, thank you. I'm enjoying it too. It's the, this, the question of some of the exceptions, the political hyperbole exception that um, to, you know, the crying, crying fire in the crowded theatre is a, a colourful mm. way of describing a, a form of incitement or a form of uh, responsibility for for the consequences of something that is that is you're expected to be acted mm -hmm. on, but the political hyperbole exception, you know, what's the the threat to kill? We're not even allowed to make jokes in an airport now about bombs. I mean, there's yeah. there's a whole lot of yeah. areas where hyperbole has been identified as something that is not a permanent exception. Do you think that that one will survive? That's a really interesting question and first of all I want to say something really clearly for your audience Stephen and Patrick that mm. most people get incorrect um, and you actually didn't quite paraphrase correctly the exception for shouting fire in a theater it's only unprotected if you are falsely shouting fire in the theater, and <laughs> that's what you meant. But by yeah. leaving out the word, um, you don't underscore the fact that it's, if it's true, you're actually saving lives by shouting it, right? So by insisting that it can only be punished when it is false is to really underscore that speech has to be directly connected to some specific serious imminent harm. And you have to, to ascertain, to, to justify suppressing it, to ascertain that, you have to look at the overall context. Um, so I think the reason why we can uh, be subjected to not telling jokes uh, about certain subjects in the context of airport security is because of the concern about security and terrorism. And if there is one consistent uh, rationale that is too often accepted by the Supreme Court in our country for speech suppression, it is unfortunately national security and in particular anything to do with that dreaded T word, terrorism. Mm -hmm. So there was a terrible decision by the Supreme Court a few years ago in which it, a very, with a strong dissent to be sure, but it should not have been a dissent, uh, the Supreme Court upheld an extremely overbroad interpretation of a statute that outlawed, quote, material support for terrorism as extending even to advocating and supporting on behalf of the undeniably humanitarian uh, undertakings of organizations that were affiliated with other organizations that had been branded terrorists by the United States State Department. And our clients in the case um, included um, advocates on behalf of uh, Kurds in uh, Turkey, for example, that were advocating for independence and the organizations that were um, 
punished for providing support were providing support in training that aspect of these Kurdish organizations, that branch, to petition the United Nations for certain resources. And, and so it was just pure expressive conduct and peaceful advocacy for humanitarian goals, but the court basically just so deferred to the government's assertion that there is a sufficient national security rationale that that was the end of the First Amendment argument. And that's happened with respect to other rights in the context of so-called anti-terrorism. In New York, for example, we have these ridiculous security experts call it security theater where the police can randomly ask to search your bags if you're going onto a subway and probably recognizing how um, uh, invasive that is, a completely suspicionless randomized search, you have the right to say no, but then you have to exit that subway station and go to another one. Well, that's going to do a lot of good, right, if you truly have a box. Um, and the court actually upheld that by saying that, well, we defer to the experts and the national security experts say that it gives people a sense of security, and that's really important. So I think the court just basically rolls over and just defers to the government if there's an asserted national security anti-terrorism benefit, and that explains the no-joking and airports <laughs> exception. That, that is concerning. I hope that doesn't that attitude doesn't survive for much longer, especially if it doesn't. Well, you know, it, it goes back to 2001 mm. in this country, the 9/11 yeah. attacks, and it's just, I, you know, it's now so long after that. But I think it's become, as many people say, the new normal. The new normal. Sadly. Right. Right. One last question I wanted to ask you, Nadine, is. Um, something about the psychological harm and the effects of hate speech. Um, in your book, you list a study done by Laura Leitz uh, from Stanford University on how hate speech affected the lives of some Jewish and LGBT college students. And the study concluded that the majority of the students surveyed, um, their responses was that hate speech didn't really affect their livelihood, um, their outlook on life and their happiness in life. Now, I, I sure hope that this isn't an outlying study, that this is actually something that, you know, is quite universal. Um, what, what do you think? Is this, is this an exception to the rule, or? I don't think so. Uh, it, it may have been in this sense that the, that the subjects were college students, mm. and I did point that out in my book, that that makes them exceptional. But I also uh, cited other studies from other countries of more general populations, and even more pertinently, perhaps, uh, Patrick, I cited psychological experts, mental health experts, who say that it's not at all inevitable that one suffers any kind of psychic or emotional harm from um, words that are hateful, that all of us can be habituated, trained, uh, educated to develop resilience, to deny the power of words to inflict that kind of harm on us. And it kind of coincides with common sense, right? When our mothers told us sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, they didn't mean that words don't hurt. Of course they hurt. They meant that we can prepare ourselves not to let the 
words hurt us that we can learn to look down on the person who's disparaging us. And that's, by the way, what was shown by the subjects in the Stanford study, that many of them just you know, felt sorry for the person who was making the hateful statements rather than it affecting their own senses of, of, of themselves. And what I found really encouraging is that cognitive behavior therapists and, and other psychological experts believe this is something that all of us can, can learn to do. Right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Nadine. Um, unless, Stephen, you have any more questions? No, no, no pressing I, questions? I oh. go all morning. Oh, yeah, that's right. I this, don't this, think this, the listeners would. No, I don't. This is probably our <laughs> longest um, podcast episode to date. So uh, thank you so much uh, for this, Nadine. This, oh, thank you both so much, Patrick and Stephen. I really enjoyed it. I uh, will look, look forward to listening to your other podcasts. Thank you for sending me the link. Well, well thank you very much. <laughs> Take care. Take care. If you like this podcast and wish to support the production of more episodes, you can go to www.freespeechcoalition.nz forward slash join. Be sure to add us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you have any feedback, comments, or recommendations of other potential guests, email us at coalition at freespeechcoalition.nz. This has been the Free Speech Coalition podcast. See you next time.